Amen. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. We just heard uh, kind of a preview of what's coming up after Easter. It's going to be preaching a series through 1 Peter. And the title of the series is going to be Living Hope. We have a living hope in our resurrected Lord. Well, if you're new today, we have been in a series since the beginning of the year uh, from the Gospel of of Luke. And so today, we're going to be talking about the crucifixion and burial of Jesus next week on Easter Sunday. We're going to talk about his resurrection and ascension. So we're going to be walking through lots of different verses from Luke 23. And so just going to ask you to keep your, keep your Bibles open. Hope you always do that. But I'm not going to be um, putting the, the verses from Luke 23 up on the screen. I want you to follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to put cross-references from other parts of God's Word up on the screen. So just always keep those Bibles open and just follow along uh, in the in the text. Let's pray together. Father, we um, thank you that we have a living hope, a risen Savior in Christ. And Lord, no matter what else is happening in our lives today, that's what trumps everything, that we've got a Savior, a Savior who came for sinners like us and who lived among us and who died for us in our place and who rose from the dead that we can have life, life abundant and life eternal. You are our living hope. Lord, many of us have maybe come into this service today just in in desperate need for a word of hope. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak to hurting hearts today. Lord, speak to hearts that need to be convicted or challenged today. Lord, whatever the issue is in our lives, word of encouragement Lord, you know, you know exactly the situation of every one of our lives. You know the needs that we bring into this service. You know exactly how you desire to work in us and then work through us to impact the lives of others as we leave this place today. And so, Lord, these are, these are just critical moments as we have open Bibles and hopefully open hearts ready to engage ready to hear the voice of your spirit as you speak to us. And Lord, even as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper later in this service, we pray that you would use this time in your word to prepare our hearts to come to the table. And so Lord, we give this time of worship to you as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always so great to come in on the Sunday mornings when we're having the Lord's Supper and to see our team here early and getting all the elements uh, ready for us, and they do such a great job. But in the Veterans Museum at Daytona Beach, there's the strangest communion set that anyone will probably ever see. Uh, During World War II, some of the fiercest fighting in the Southwest Pacific took place on the island of Biak as American and Japanese forces were engaged in a pitched battle over that island. And the first American chaplain to to set foot on the island of Biak was a man named Leon Maltby. And so he, he, he came and they began to have services with the guys there, and, and uh, the chapel that they had was sort of a 20 by 60 canvas 
structure. It had a floor made out of packed coral and a roof made out of a, a yellow parachute. And some carpenters helped Chaplain Malpe to kind of to build a, to build a pulpit and an altar and some some pews uh, for the, the the servicemen to sit on. But they had nothing with which to serve communion. Well, Chaplain Maltby found some, some 50 caliber shells. He made certain that they were shells that had, had never been uh, fired. They'd never been used to, to kill people. But they removed the, the, the powder and the firing pins and all of that and, and shined them up. And they had about 80 cups with which to serve communion. That was 1944. The very next year, when the war ended, Chaplain Maltby was the first American Protestant chaplain to, to enter Japan. And there he became close friends with a Japanese pastor. And, and one day together, he and this Japanese pastor held a joint service, a moving, a deeply moving service in which together they used those cups to, to serve communion. And at this Veterans Museum in Daytona Beach where the communion set is displayed, there's a sign above it that says, instruments of death become symbols of eternal life. Instruments of death become symbols of eternal life. Most of the 23rd chapter of Luke is about death and the ultimate instrument of death, a cross. But that very thing has become for us who believe an instrument of life. So what do we see here in the 23rd chapter of Luke. And if you want to follow along in, in your, your bulletin and your taking notes, the first thing is that we see here the, the, the politics of the leaders. The politics of the leaders. So last Sunday, we, we saw the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he was taken to the house of the high priest, and he was subjected to a, a mock trial. But the religious leaders did not have the authority to do what they really wanted to do to Jesus, which was to put him to death. In order for that to take place, they had to send him before the Roman governor, Pilate. And so what we see here at the beginning of chapter 23 is that Jesus is sent before Pilate. So let's look at the first couple of verses here in the chapter. It says, In their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So it's obvious that these religious leaders are, are politically savvy because they're making accusations against Jesus that were, were orchestrated to sort of alarm the Roman governor. They accuse Jesus here falsely of opposing the payment of taxes to Caesar. They hope that, that certainly that would alarm the Roman governor. But, but we see here that, that Pilate really kind of sees through their ruse. You need to understand there was mutual contempt 
between these people and Pilate. Uh, they, hate, they really hated him. He hated them. It was mutual contempt. And Pilate sort of, he, he knows he's being played. And so he says uh, to them in verse 4, it says, Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But then, in verse 5, they fire a bullet that they had been holding back until this point. And so they say in verse 5, it says, they kept insisting, he stirs up the people. Now, this was really a veiled threat because they knew that Pilate's job was to keep the locals calm. And they knew that if there was civil unrest, that it was likely that Pilate would be recalled by the Caesar to Rome and lose his job and possibly even lose his life. But again, Pilate, Pilate resists immediately sending Jesus to death and, and, and acting again in a very politically savvy way himself, Pilate passes the buck to Herod. And so we see in the verses that, that follow, uh, in verses 6 and following, that Jesus is sent before Herod, who was sort of the, 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 the Jewish puppet king that the Romans had installed. Now, Herod was incredibly cruel. He was immoral. He was sort of a, a buffoon. This is a man who had, he had married his brother's wife in this incredible scandal. Uh, he had, he had, had had John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, murdered, beheaded. And, and, and so as Jesus comes before him, uh, Herod tries to ask him a series of questions. Jesus has no intention of sort of casting pearls before this swine. And so he just remains silent. And Herod, the mocker, does what mockers do. And he begins to lead in the mockery of Jesus and, and dresses Jesus in this shiny uh, robe of, of royalty. And then he, acting in a politically savvy way, sends him back to Pilate once again. Let's pick that up in verses 13 and following. It says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, you have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with the things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he has sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. Now, Pilate clearly wants, wants, he doesn't want to be the one who issues the order of execution for Jesus. And part of this is politics because he doesn't want to inflame maybe perhaps those who follow Jesus, but there's something else that's in the background. And Matthew tells us about it in his gospel. Let's look at, uh, on the screen to Matthew 27 and verse 19. It says, while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. So the night before, Pilate's wife has had a, 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 a dream about Jesus, and she doesn't want her 
husband to, to, to send him to his, his death. And so this is lurking in the background as well. But a pilot wants to just, uh, just uh, not be the one to do this. And so he knows he has to, to satisfy the religious leader somehow. So in verse 16, he just says, therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. This would not be any flogging. Roman floggings were incredibly brutal. Sometimes even the floggings brought death. It would be a, a whip with bits of bone or lead in, at the end of a, of a leather whip, and it was just designed to absolutely rip a person's skin apart. And so he knows it will be incredibly brutal, but he wants to satisfy the religious leader's desire for blood at this point. But they will not be satisfied with just blood. They demand death, crucifixion. And so we move from the politics of the leaders to the pressure of the mob. The pressure of the mob. Look in your Bibles at verses 18 and 19. Then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. When it says here in verse 18 that they all cried out together, don't get in your mind, this is like the, the whole population of Jerusalem or, or even most of them. No, this is a hand-picked mob. These are people that the religious leaders uh, wanted to be there that were crying out to, to crucify Jesus. And they know that it's the custom for one Jewish prisoner to be released to them. Well, they don't want Jesus to be released. They want Jesus to be crucified. So they cry out for Barabbas to be released. And Luke makes clear in verse 19 that Barabbas was a notorious criminal, a murderer. But you see, Luke is making a deeper point here. And the deeper point is that Barabbas is you and me. Barabbas is you and me because the, the guilty, the guilty one is going to get grace and be set free. And the righteous one, the innocent one, is going to be condemned to death. He's going to die in his place just as Jesus dies in our place. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He died as our substitute in our place. One of the survivors of the, the San Bernardino shooting, the mass shooting that took place in 2015 in, in San Bernardino was a young woman named Denise Peraza. And Denise's life was spared, not because the, the terrorists saw her and turned away, but because when the bullets began to fly, her body was shielded by a colleague named Shannon Brown, who took the bullets in her place. And as Denise described what happened that morning, she said this, Wednesday morning at 10.55 a.m., we were seated next to each other at a table. 
joking about how we thought the large clock on the wall might be broken because time seemed to be moving so slowly. I would have never guessed that only five minutes later we would be huddled next to each other under the same table, using a fallen chair as a shield from over 60 rounds of bullets being fired across the room. While I cannot recall every single second that played out that morning, I will always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him behind that chair, and amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying these three words, I got you. I got you. God says that to each one of his children all the time, doesn't he? I got you. I got you. But the ultimate place where he said it was on the cross, where he took death in our place, and even more than that, took our sins on himself and died for us as our substitute. Let's look at verses 24 and and, and 25. It says, so Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. One of the themes that we've been talking about during Passion Week is that it seems as if the, the bad guys are in charge. It seems as if they are getting their way. It seems as if it is their will that is being done. But we know there's a deeper plan. (laughs) There was a deeper will that was being fulfilled through all of it for our salvation. And as Peter stands up to preach on the day of Pentecost, he says in Acts 2 and verses 23 and 24, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. You see, the, the, the people who were involved in this, they had a plan for death, but God had a greater plan and a deeper plan And his plan was a life plan. It was a plan for for life. And again, what an encouraging thing to understand that, that, that in our lives as believers, when we go through things where it seems like everything in our lives is coming apart and things are just seem utterly out of out of control, we we can know that our loving and sovereign God is in charge and that he loves us. And, and, that he's, and, and that he makes no mistakes and that he's, he's, he's causing all things to work together for his glory and for our good. That God's plan cannot be thwarted. And it's his plan that is being fulfilled here for, for our, our salvation, for life. We see the politics of the leaders. We see the pressure of the mob. Third, we see the passion of the Savior. You ever wonder why we use that word when we talk about this week, passion week? <laughs> in, in modern English, when we use the word passion, we're usually talking about desire. But originally the word comes from the Latin word passio, which means suffering. And so when we talk about the passion of the Savior, we're talking about the suffering of the Savior. 
Let's look at, at verse 26 in our Bibles. It says, as they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to, to carry behind Jesus. The, the Roman soldiers had a custom called impressment. And so they could simply uh, impress any, take any civilian that they saw and say, you know, carry this or that uh, a mile. And, you know, they could just order any civilian to do that anytime they wanted. That's what's going on here. So it's Passover. And at Passover, there were Jewish pilgrims that were coming into Jerusalem from, from different places in, in, in the world. And so this man, Simon, is coming from Cyrene, which was a Roman province in North Africa. It would be the country of Libya today. And there was a, a large Jewish colony in, in Cyrene. And so uh, Simon has come from, from North Africa, uh, and, and he just happens to be there, and they, they order him to carry uh, this cross. Now here we see another, another favorite theme that we see in Luke, and, and, and it's that God is building a worldwide family. That, that every tribe and tongue and race, every ethnicity, people from all over the world, God is building a family for his glory, a worldwide, multi-ethnic, multicultural family for his glory. And we can see that as this African is carrying the, the, the cross of, of, of Jesus. Luke is foreshadowing the day when we're going to be gathered together as a family with every tribe and tongue praising our Savior. Well, fortunately, we kind of have a strong hint of how this story ends with this man. Do you remember when we went through Mark and Romans? There's a beautiful, tantalizing nugget that kind of tells us what is going to happen in the life of, of, of Simon, the man who, who carried the cross of Jesus. So um, when Mark tells us of his account of what happened that day, he says this, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why in the world would Mark, as he writes his gospel, go out of his way to mention who this guy's sons were unless he knew that his original readers, who were members of the church at Rome, would know who these guys are. They would know who Alexander and Rufus were. It would make no sense to say that unless they, they knew that. And so what's happened is it's, it seems as if um, Simon becomes a follower of Jesus, as does his family, his sons, his wife. And they, they, they're from a Roman province, Cyrene, and so it would not be unusual for them to move to the capital of the Roman Empire, maybe for work purposes, maybe they were part of planting the church in, in Rome, but they seem to have ended up there. This becomes a, a Jesus-following North African family, <laughs> and they end up in the city of Rome, and as Mark writes his gospel, when he talks about that day when Simon carried the cross, 
he, he mentions that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus, who those people in the church at Rome would know. And then when Paul writes his letter to the church at Rome, what does he say in Romans 16 and verse 13? He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. How beautiful is this? So Paul, somewhere along the line, has, has, even though he's never visited the church at Rome, Paul had gotten to know this family. Simon and his, and his family and, 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 and Simon's wife. It seems maybe Simon has passed away at this point, but his wife is still living. And notice how he refers to her. Also his mother and mine, right? So Simon's wife had become like a mother to the Apostle Paul. Again, it's a beautiful image, isn't it, of family, the family of God. We're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. It's a picture of family. We are joined together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. The blood of Jesus may, binds us together in a way that's even closer than blood kin. As a family of God, a family of brothers and sisters. Of course, there's another point that we should take from Simon carrying the cross of Jesus. It harkens back to something that Jesus himself had said in Luke 9.23. He said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. It means that to follow Jesus, we engage in, in daily self-denial. It means daily dying to ourselves that we might live completely for Christ, live for the one who died for us. Look at verse 27 in your Bibles. It says a large crowd of people following, followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting after him. Again, this is another Lucan theme that we've seen over and over again in this study, and that is the prominence of women in the ministry of Jesus. And Luke here goes out of his way here to mention these faithful women who were going to be the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Look at verses 32 and, and, and 33. It says, two others... Criminals were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and, and one on the left. Another theme that we've seen over and over again in our study of Luke is that, that Jesus comes to live among sinners, to rescue sinners. He does not stay distant or remote from us. No, he comes to us. He dwells among us. He lives among us. He dies for us. And, and Luke here, in the very language that he, that he uses here uh, to describe this as, as, he, as he talks about the fact that Jesus is crucified along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left, that Jesus is right in the middle of, of, of sinners, sinners like you and me. 
And then he tells us that something beautiful happens in the lives of, of one of these sinners. Look at verses 39 and following. It says, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God? Since you were undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, if you ever needed evidence that salvation is by grace and not works, here it is, because this man is not in a position to do any good work. He's on a cross getting ready to die. But Jesus welcomes anyone who will turn to him and repent and believe as this man is doing. He says, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. You know, in, in, the, in the NFL, during the summer, they have a training camp, and uh, there's always a lot of rookies there and everything who don't know whether or not they're going to make the team. And so during summer camp, these teams start out with like 85 players, and then over the course of a few weeks, they have to whittle down the roster, and they make a series of cuts. And they make cut down to you know, to, uh, to, you know, to, to, to 70 or uh, 65, and they have to get all the way down to like 53 who will actually make the team. Well, you know, at the beginning of, of NFL training camps, the coaches will stand there and they will say to this large group, make us put you on the team. Make your performance such that we can't cut you. <laughs> Perform so well that we have to put you on the team. I think that's how a lot of people perceive and most religions, in fact, do work that way. It's about human performance. And if you perform well enough, then you can make heaven's roster. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is not about our performance, but what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's about his performance. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his work, his perfect, finished work on our behalf. Let's look at verses 44 and the beginning of verse 45. It says, it was now about noon and darkness came over the, the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. Um, I saw something this week that I'd, I'd never seen until studying this, and it's the, the prophecy of Amos chapter eight and verses nine and 10, which says this, in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, I will darken the land in the daytime, I will make that grief like mourning for an only son. Uh, this is a grief that is so deep and so dark that not even light can get through as, as all of the darkness of this sinful world converges on Jesus. But then 
the beginning of light. Look at the latter part of of verse 45. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. This was the foot-thick curtain that separated the holy of holies and the temple where the presence of God dwelled. And suddenly it was as if invisible hands tore that curtain from top to bottom. And the message there is that the holiness of God and the Holy Spirit of God was going to be released upon the world as was going to happen at Pentecost. His spirit has been released into the world and available to you and me. And then Jesus Jesus cries out, it says in verse 46, he cries out in a a loud voice, and we know from the other gospels that this was no cry of resignation. This was a cry of victory. Jesus is crying out, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is paid in full. Our sin debt has been paid in full through the cross of Christ. Ellen Vaughn is a a Christian journalist and she tells a a story from the mission field about a God who, who hung on the cross. In 1999, in northern Cambodia, there was a Cambodian pastor who had a burden for the people of this region. It was a region that was just virtually untouched by the gospel, utterly dominated by Buddhism and spiritism. And this pastor had a burden to go into that area of northern Cambodia. And so he went, and it was just you know, incredibly difficult. But then he came to this one village And the people in this village were just remarkably and immediately open to the message of the gospel. To the point that he he questioned them about it. And then an older lady came forward with her head bowed and with hands just trembling. And she told him a story. She said, we've been waiting 20 years for you to come. She said 20 years ago, in 1979, when the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia, and they were going in, and it was genocide. This is where the term, the killing fields, came from. And so they were, the Khmer Rouge was going into village after village and just, just wiping out everybody who lived there. And they came into this village 20 years before with the intent to do the same thing and they forced the villagers to dig their own grave, to dig a a huge mass grave and then to stand over it. They were just gonna shoot them in the back so that they would fall into the grave. And so the people dug their own grave and they were standing there prepared to be shot and people began to wail and, and, and cry out, and they were, they were crying out to Buddha and crying out to their ancestors, and some were crying out to demonic spirits. But there was one, one lady who had a memory of something that had been shared with her years before about a God who hung on a cross. Still an unknown God to her, 
but she knew that much. And so she began to call out to this God who had hung on the cross, thinking that perhaps if a God hung on a cross, then maybe he could relate to the suffering that they were going through. And so she began to call out to the God who hung on the cross, and then the other villagers joined her, and they began to wail and to cry out to the God who hung on a cross. And their wailing became quiet, crying, and there was a stillness in the jungle air. And, and they had the nerve to turn around and to face their captors. But their captors were no longer there. They were gone, disappeared into the jungle. And this woman said to this pastor, she said, we were waiting for 20 years for someone to come and tell us the rest of the story about a God who hung on a cross. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It tells that story for us. Let's prepare our hearts to partake of it. Let's pray. This should be a time of reflection and preparation for each of us. This is a time Paul tells us to examine our hearts. None of us deserve to be able to take part in this table. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Where's your heart today? First of all, do you know Christ? Is Christ your savior and your king? If not, then this would have no meaning for you. Do you know Jesus? Are there issues in your life, even as a Christian, that you need to get right before him? Things that need to be confessed. Maybe, maybe unforgiveness that needs to be dealt with. This is a time for, for us to, to evaluate and make sure that nothing is, is hindering our intimacy, our fellowship with our Lord. Let's just spend some time in reflection perhaps confession before him. Lord, we thank you for your love for sinners like us a love so great that you went to the cross in our place. And so Lord, now as we take part in this special meal that you ordained, we pray that you would use it to, to bring nourishment, spiritual 
nourishment to us as we focus on the finished work of Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.